Thank you, Andy. Great job. Well, this morning, I want to finish up this series, a four-part series we started a number of weeks ago about uh, prayer, enemies of prayer. And this morning, I'm going to add two to that list. We've talked so far about uh, six enemies of prayer. And when I say prayer, I don't mean just, you know, bowing our heads and praying for a moment, but really having an effective prayer life. And my guess is that a lot of you in this room, if you had sat down and given it some thought, taken an hour or so and said, well, what do you think he's going to talk about? You would have named some of these that I've named, uh, and, and so it came as no surprise to you. I'm going to mention two this morning, however, that might. There, there are two this morning I'm going to talk about that probably a lot of you in this room wouldn't have said necessarily would have come to your mind when you think about enemies of prayer, but I think you'll see they may be two of our fiercest enemies that we've talked about yet. The first, believe it or not, is success. Have you ever thought about how success in life could actually be a hindrance to your being effective in prayer? Believe me, you're going to see in just a moment it can be. Now, I want to be real clear about this. I hope everyone in this room considers themselves successful. You know, humility is not having a bad self-image and thinking, well, you know, I'm just no good to anybody. That's not humility. That's not true humility. So I hope you look at yourself, and I hope you have enjoyed success in your life. And it doesn't mean because you're successful, you can't have an effective prayer life. Uh, I hope many of you have been successful in parenting. I hope many of you have been successful in marriage that you're successful in being a grandparent, that you're successful in your job, that you're successful perhaps in some area of interest that you hold in life. There's nothing wrong with success. So don't hear me saying that this morning. I just want to caution you that success can be and often is a real hindrance to prayer. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles, look with me to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to look at verse 8, the latter part, and then verse 9. And then we're going to go to another text in just a moment. But look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and verse 9. The writer of Proverbs, he's asking God for two things. And I want you to note what these two things are. This is what he says. Give me neither poverty or wealth. I want you to think about that for a moment. That sounds pretty noble, right, on the front end? Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Don't let me starve to death. Don't let me have to scramble to find something to eat, to have shelter over my head. Please, God, don't leave me in a state of poverty. But also, don't give me wealth. Now, probably we'd be way more hesitant about praying that second part, right? Uh, God, don't make me wealthy. But that's what he prays. And then he adds this, feed me with the food I need. Now, a lot of us in this room kind of think of ourselves as being in that category. We think, well, you know what? Really, that's not so unusual. That's kind of how I am in. I just want enough to get by, right? I bet many of you in this room have said, I don't care a thing in the world about being rich. I really just don't want to be rich. I don't have to have wealth. It's not something that's really important to me. Now, some of you said something contrary to that one time or another, right? You said, well, I hope one day I'm really rich and really wealthy. 
I found as we get older, as we age in life, we realize it's not going to happen. A lot of us kind of get over that, and we say, well, you know what? I don't have to be wealthy. I don't have to have everything. We want enough to get by. You ever say anything like that? I just need enough to, to get by. I just want to live comfortably, right? Well, I want to tell you, I'm not sure we're being as honest in our assessment of that as we want to pretend we are. Because what the writer says here is, I just need enough. All I need is enough to get by today. If you follow that line of thinking, it's not necessarily being comfortable. It's simply having enough to cover today's needs. How many of us in this room honestly can say, when we die, we hope we die just two or three minutes before our banking account is deplete. Because that's what it is to have just enough to get by, right? You die and you don't have anything left over. Uh, you don't have anything to leave family or friends or a charity that you'd like to perhaps leave in your will. You just die and there's nothing left over. That's what this prayer is about. Just give me enough for today. So when we think about that, we say, well, you know, maybe you don't cut it quite that close, you know. Let's live comfortably. But what he prays for is just enough to get by. Who would pray a prayer like that? Don't surprise you, Solomon prays it. And of course, you know about Solomon. And he tells us why he prays it. Look at the very next verse. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or I might still profaning the name of my God. You know what he's saying? He's saying the problem with having too much is, I'll come to a place, I'll say, who is the Lord? In other words, who needs him? Who needs God in your life if you got everything and you can meet every challenge that ever rises by just reaching in your back pocket and pulling out your wallet? Who needs God? So God, don't give me so much that I become independent of you and self-sufficient, and I don't need you in my life. But Lord, here's the other thing. I don't want to be tempted to have to steal food. I don't have to be tempted to take from someone else what is not mine and thereby profane your name or break your law. That's what he's talking about. And so, Lord, I don't want to fall in either one of those categories. I want just enough. In other words, I don't really want to be that successful. Now, I'm going to tell you, if anybody could write this and know about this, it was King Solomon. When you read about Solomon in Chronicles and Kings, I want to tell you, many of you read Forbes magazine, Fortune 500. Some of you in this room keep up with that kind of stuff. And, and boy, you know who are the 10 richest people in the world and where they live and all that kind of stuff. You've never read about any human being who succeeded in life financially as much as King Solomon. When you read Chronicles and Kings and about his wealth, I'm telling you, it is opulent wealth. It is mind-blowing. You think to yourself, how could anyone have a mask? When you read about his stables and the palace, he was greater than the temple he built in Jerusalem for God. When you read about his wealth, you just say, man, that's just off. That's crazy kind of money. And boy, he had it. He lived an opulent lifestyle. And I think as he's writing this, he's thinking back at times perhaps when that wealth didn't serve him well. 
But this guy's got money. He had a thousand wives. A lot of us have trouble supporting one, right? I mean, I had a fellow in my church a while back that he, he uh, his credit card got stolen and he didn't report it. He told me for six months because he found out the guy that stole it was spending less than his wife was, right? So here's a guy. That's true, by the way. I mean, it's true he told me that's not true she spends like that. Anyhow, here's a guy who says, boy, there is danger in having too much. We need just enough to get by because he recognized what happened in his life was this. He himself turned away from God. When he started out, he had a whole heart for God. But by the time he finished, he had turned his back to some degree on the things he'd been taught in his youth. I want you to look at a second passage. Go with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And let me set this up for you. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this is known as the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Jesus is speaking to John. And he's going to give him, he's going to dictate seven letters he wants sent to these seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, many of you, probably most of you in this room, are somewhat familiar with these seven letters. You know this already. These seven letters are strikingly similar in form, not in content. The content of every letter is unique and individual and different from one to the next. But the form is almost identical. He begins with a greeting from the Lord Jesus Christ depicting Jesus in a certain fashion that is appropriate for that city in every individual letter. He then talks about what he knows about them. And he either commends them or he is critical of them in every single letter. He makes a promise to them at the end of every one of these letters. I want you to hear what he says to the church at Laodicea. And let me just preface this by telling you this. This is the letter in which there is not one word of commendation. He doesn't say anything good about this church in Laodicea. Everything in this letter is of a critical nature. Look with me to chapter 3 and verse 14. And here's what we find. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, Everybody in this room has heard this passage, right? You've heard it read, you've read it yourself, you've studied it, you've heard sermons about it. I'm fearful when we come to this passage, sometimes we bring our thinking, modern thinking, to bear on the words of Jesus and misunderstand what he's saying. For instance, let me give you an example. How many of you have ever attended a church where there just wasn't much spirit or much life? I mean, it just... It was just dull and boring. And you left there, and as you left, you turned to your spouse and you said something like this, man, that place didn't have much life in it, right? Have you ever said something like this? It was as cold as a milkshake in there. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you, I preached in some of those places, right? I mean, it's dead as 3 o'clock. It was, it was just lifeless. It was cold. There was no warmth of spirit. Now, that place just isn't on fire. And then you've been to that place at some time in your life 
where, man, they preach the Word of God and the singing is uplifting and there's the Spirit of God that's moving in that place and we say something like this when we leave there, man, that place was on fire. I mean, those people are on fire for God. The fires of revival are burning in that church. You ever heard those expressions? As a result, I'll tell you something, it taints our thinking about this passage. Because what we have the tendency to think is this, that hot is good and cold is bad. But I want you to look at the passage. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're in the middle. You're tepid. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. Jesus is not saying, I wish you were good or bad. Why would he want them to be bad? You understand that? So what he's saying is this. Both are good. To be hot is good and to be cold is good, but you're not either. You're lukewarm and that's good for absolutely nothing. Now what does it mean, both are good? Because you see, we got to divorce it from how we think in that spiritual realm about hot and cold. Have you ever been out working in the yard and it's 95 degrees and your wife comes out and she has pity on you and brings you a glass of cold lemonade? Boy, doesn't that taste good. You're outside and you come inside and it's air conditions blowing and it feels so good and it's so refreshing. It just kind of revives you when you felt like you're going to pass out. Or it's cold and you go inside and it's warm and cozy and you sit by the fire. Hot is good and cold is good, but lukewarm, it's just in between. It's absolutely nothing. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 14, 15, and 16. Look at verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I want to tell you, you've heard that all your life. You've heard this sermon preached, this passage preached. But I think sometimes we just kind of hurry through this and we don't really think about it. Do you realize how repulsive an image that is? Do you realize how offensive that is to say to someone? Imagine tomorrow at work, your boss does something that just really ticks you off. How many of you going to walk into his office 30 minutes later and say, you know what, I just want to tell you something. You make me vomit. <laughs> Better be careful about that one, right? Because he's probably going to throw you out of his office. Try this today when you go home, guys. Your wife works real hard. She puts the meal on the table. You take five, six, seven bites out of it, and you turn to it and say, hmm, this makes me want to puke. <laughs> you think you get by with that very long? Boy, it's pretty offensive thing to say to somebody, you make me want to vomit. And that's what Jesus says. Now get this, these are not people we would think of as being his enemies. These seven letters are to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is one of his churches he has loved and died for, and he says to this church, you make me sick. Boy, I'm going to tell you, if he says that to the church of Laodicea, we ought to pause real carefully and say, what in the world would make Jesus say something like that? I mean, that's so unlike Jesus. It's so uncharacteristic of Jesus to say something so repulsive as that. 
What is it in the world they have done that is so offended our Lord? Well, look at the very next line, if you will. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. Picture of arrogance, isn't it? And you don't know that you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Let me tell you about these people in Laodicea. The church of Laodicea, if you had looked at all seven of these churches, this is where the fat cats were. This is the wealthy church. This is the one that has all the money they need. It was a banking community. They dealt often in gold. They had three primary things they made their living from. Banking the production of clothing, this white garment, and an eye salve. They shipped this eye salve for medical purposes to other communities in Asia Minor. Jesus capitalizes on that, and this is what he says. He says, when I look at you, I see how you see yourselves. Now, you understand, we see ourselves one way. Someone else sees us a different way oftentimes, right? We can be delusional. And this is what they see. We're doing just fine. Our bank accounts are full. We got more than enough money, all the gold we could ever want. We're producing this white garment. Look at us. Man, check out these threads. I am really dressed to the nines, right? What about my vision? <laughs> Nothing wrong with my vision. We've got this eye salve we produce, and I can see perfectly. We're on top of our game. That's what they see when they look in the mirror and see themselves. But here's what Jesus sees. He says, when I see you, I see people who are poverty stricken. He's talking about spiritually bankrupt people. He says, when I look at you, I see people who are in rags. You're naked and you don't know it. Remember that children's book we read to our kids? The king who thought he'd been convinced by this fellow that he had these beautiful clothes, but really he's standing there absolutely naked before the people. And he says, you think you see so well, but you know what I see? I see somebody who is blind and miserable and naked. Now, I just want to ask you, does it kind of upset you and alarm you and cause you pause to wonder, how God looks at us today. We see ourselves one way. Does God look at us another? You see, when you're on top of the world and you got everything going for you and you're successful in life as the world measures success, it's pretty easy to get arrogant and think, we never say this out loud in church. Well, God, we really just don't need you very much. You say, well, we never think that here at First Pickens. Well, let me just caution you about something. It'd be pretty easy to think that because after all, look at your building. I mean, look at this facility. There are churches out there meeting today all over this countryside who don't have a secondary place, who don't have a primary place to worship as nice as this is, let alone your primary house of worship. I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful edifice over there, and it's as pretty as any place I've ever preached. It's gorgeous, right? And look at your pastors you've had. You've got a history of having had Great pastors. Fred, one of my dear friends, 
There's not a better pastor in South Carolina. It'd be pretty easy, wouldn't it, say, you know what? We have got some good preaching here at First Pickens. And not only that, we've had a history of it going way, way, way back. And what about your music? I mean, I've told Brian any number of times I'd rather work with him than about anybody I know. He just, he is gifted in music. Your pianist, the instrumentalist, the choir. I'm not blowing smoke at you this morning. I'm telling you, you've got an outstanding music program. And I've heard many of you say, we are loaded with talent here at First Baptist Church of Pickens, right? And I know this about you. You've got good key leaders. And the people in the church love each other. And that's a wonderful thing, but I just want to caution you about something. It'd be pretty easy to say, well, Lord, you know what? We don't really need to depend on you that much. We've kind of got this. I mean, we're, we're kind of good to go. we got good preaching, good music, good leaders, good building. We're meeting our budget. Everything's cool. We're rock along just fine, right? Success can do you in in terms of prayer. Listen to what Jesus goes on to tell them. I advise you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be committed and repent. Now verse 20, get this. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will have dinner with him and he with me. Verse 20, in my estimation, is one of the verses in the New Testament that is misinterpreted as much as any verse in the entire New Testament. In fact, I don't mean to be offensive to you today, but probably many of you in this room, I'd be surprised if many of you in this room have not use this verse in an incorrect fashion. Let me tell you why I say that. When we read that verse, most of us, our minds go back to that time in revival when somebody came and said, Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. And if you will just open your life to him and open your heart to him, he will come in and he will save you and he will give you eternal life because Jesus wants you to be saved and he's knocking at your heart and he's not going to force his way into your life. But if you'll open that door, the latch is on the outside. You've heard all those things and he'll just come into you. Well, I want to tell you something. Spiritually, that's true. Jesus wants men and women to be saved. He'll not force himself upon you. He's inviting you in the book of Revelation and other places to come to him. But here's the cold hard truth. That's not what this verse is about. Jesus is not talking to an individual and he's not talking to people who are lost. He's talking to his church. Remember that? And the door he's knocking at is not the door of your heart. It's the door of the church. You got to ask yourself, what would bother him so much that he says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. It nauseates you. Here's what it is. He's on the outside of his church looking in instead of on the inside directing the life of the church. They have shut him out. And you know why they have shut him out? Because they have become all sufficient. We've got everything we need. We're okay. And I'm going to tell you something. There are a lot of churches around the country today, mostly the successful ones, who are suffering from that same exact problem. Because God at one time, they were dependent on Him, and God blessed. 
And with that blessing, they became arrogant and they came to the place that they said, God, we don't really need you anymore. We're capable of running the show on our own. And God has been left out of the church. I believe all over this country this morning, there are places where people are meeting and sermons are being preached and singing is taking place. And God is standing on the outside, looking on the inside, wanting in. Could that have happened here at First Baptist Church of Pickens? He said, well, no, no, we really do pray. Really? Look at all the things you do and then ask yourself this. How much time do we spend praying? And how much time do we spend entertaining and meeting and doing all the other things that we do? You see, success can sneak up on you. It's happened to me in my life before. Where with one victory and another victory and another victory, it's pretty easy to think, you know what? We got this. We know how to do this. And we thereby exclude God from the picture altogether. Let me mention a final enemy of prayer and I close. And this one likewise is going to surprise you perhaps. Not only a successful life, but an ordinary life. James chapter 5, before the guys put it on the screen, don't put it on the screen just yet, guys. And before you turn to it, let me just ask you, how many of you in this room know what James chapter 5, those verses I talked about, verse 13 and following, are about? Does anybody here know? I'm sure, I'm betting half of you, you don't trust yourself to say it, but I'm betting at least half of you probably know what James 5 is about. Do you know what it's about? You're not going to say, are you? (laughs) But I know you know it. It's about prayer. He's going to cite Elijah as an example. And he's going to say, here's why you ought to pray. Because look how Elijah prayed and what resulted from that prayer, right? But here's my question. If prayer is so effective and we need God to answer prayer, why don't we pray? That's what this series has been about. Why don't we pray? What are the hindrances to prayer, the enemies of prayer? Can I tell you the biggest reason we don't pray, and and none of us want to hear this. I don't even want to say this, but it's true. It's because we see so few prayers answered. Isn't that right? Because if we were seeing prayers answered all the time, we'd be encouraged and we'd say, well, let's just pray more. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The more they prayed, the more God did. The more God did, the more they prayed. But we suffer from the opposite. We pray and we don't see anything, and so as a result, we say, what's the use? So we pray these little namby-pamby prayers and we're content to do that and just move right along saying, hey, we'll handle all this ourselves. Well, let me show you what the problem was. Look at James 5. Go ahead and put it on the screen and turn to it if you have your Bible. James 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I like that. You know what that means? He was ordinary, just like we are. He put his pants on the same way you do. He got up in the morning, did everything he did throughout the day, went to bed, got up the next morning. He's an ordinary guy. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. If you want to understand the Scripture Clearly, can I give you a tip on something? One of the things I do is this, and I'm, I was blessed to be able to, to do this because 
I'm not a quick study like a lot of you. I was a slow reader. So I just read things real slow. And as I'd read them, I'd stop and think, well, what would that do? What would that be like? And try to insert myself in that situation and, and just flesh it out. We read this so quickly, we miss it. Do you hear what he's saying? He prayed it wouldn't rain for three and a half years and it didn't rain. Not two weeks, not a month, not three months, not six months, three and a half years. Now we've had some droughts in South Carolina, remember? A few years ago I can remember that weather map and it had us all in red. You know how long it didn't rain? About two and a half months. Two and a half months. You multiply that to where it's three and a half years. You've never seen a drought in South Carolina three and a half years. Do you know what it would do? It would devastate. I don't mean it would hurt. It would devastate our economy. There wouldn't be a creek bed around that had a drop of water in it. Our lake levels would plunge like you have never seen before. Remember that drought we had back somewhere in the early teens, 2012, 13, 14? I owned a lake house down on Lake Hartwell. Small little place, shallow lot, bad for that drought. I'm going to tell you, they could have, Clemson could have played a football game between my dock and where the water began, right? I mean, it was long, long, long way out there to where the water was. You remember driving over there? That was about a two or three month drought. Can you imagine how our lakes would dry up? There wouldn't be anything green in the upstate. How would that affect agriculture? Well, you'd lose tomatoes and beans and soybeans and all that. But let me tell you something else. Every cattle farmer, because they couldn't afford to buy hay, they'd have trouble even finding it if they could buy it and afford it. They'd be selling off all their cattle. Prices would go through the roof. You could go to the grocery store and not find groceries. That's what happened in Israel. It didn't rain for three and a half years. You know why? God was bringing Ahab and Israel to their knees. He wanted to get Ahab's attention and bring him absolutely to his knees. And so he says, he prays, and for three and a half years, it doesn't rain. Why did this ordinary guy pray and God did incredible things and we pray and nothing happens? Well, I've got to be honest with you. I purposefully left out verse 16b. I want you to look at that text. Read verse 16b. The intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. The intense prayer, that's part of it, fervent prayer of the righteous is very, very powerful. The other thing is this, the righteous. This was an ordinary man in terms of he was a human being like all of us, but I want to tell you something, and this is the part I hope you'll get as I bring the message to a close. There was nothing ordinary about Elijah's spiritual life at all. He was an ordinary flesh and blood human being, but I'm going to tell you something. His spiritual life was exemplary. It was extraordinary. I mean, this is a guy who listened to the voice of God, obeyed the voice of God, was obedient to God, lived a holy, separated, consecrated, dedicated, pure life. 
And I just wonder, is that the problem we have? I wonder if today in the church we have become so ordinary, we look like everybody out there in the world. In fact, can I tell you something? There are a lot of churches working their hardest to try to convince the world we're just like you. There are a ton of churches out there selling themselves today on this idea. You can come here and be comfortable because we're just like you. We're no different than you are. I'm going to tell you something. When people come in the church of the place, they look just like everybody they pass on the street. Boy, something is bad wrong with the church. Our language shouldn't be the language of the people on the street. Our actions shouldn't be the actions of the people on the street. Our holiness and purity shouldn't be like the purity and the holiness of the average guy on the street. I'm not talking about living a puritanical, legalistic life. I'm talking about a life that's simply dedicated to God that says, hey, you know what? I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to obey Him. I'm not going to be influenced by my culture. I'm going to influence my culture. I close by reading you this verse in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. That's what Isaiah writes. He says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. He can reach us. It's not he's got a short withered arm and he's incapable of reaching us. Nor his ears too dull for hearing. Some of you are going through a stage in life right now. You've gotten older and you don't hear as well. You need hearing aids, right? And your grandchildren, they speak to you and they say, boy, Papa, Dad, Mom, they need some hearing aids. They can't, their hearing's dull. Their hearing's dull. And Isaiah is saying, surely God's arm is not too short that he can't reach us. And surely his hearing is not so dull. He's not so ancient. He hasn't been here so long that he doesn't hear us. And this is what he says. No. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have or your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Isaiah concludes this. He says, "Another reason we're being punished, and God's not listening to us pray. It's not because He can't." hear us, he can't see us, he doesn't know we're in need. It's because we have so much sin in our lives, we have become repulsive to him. And we're just not holy and pure. And so I'm going to tell you something, until we address our own spiritual poverty, the real problem and need in our life, he's not going to be concerned about these other things about which you're praying. I'm telling you today, if you haven't already come to know this, We've got much bigger fish to fry spiritually than most of the things that we pray about. We're far, far in greater spiritual poverty than even we know. Do you realize how much the world has impacted the church? How much we look like people everywhere else in the world? Do people see anything about your life that they say, well, you know what, that's somebody who's dedicated to God. I don't mean... They say, that guy, you know, he follows this bunch of rules and regulations. No, not that kind of thing. I'm saying they just know there goes a man who is holy, committed, pure. 
clean heart, clean spirit, clean mouth, clean life. He's dedicated to God. I'm going to tell you something. Either James lied or what he said is true. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that may just be your problem and my problem. That we don't fit that category anymore. There's a way to fix that. It's not an easy path, but you know what the path is? It's recognizing that about yourself. Recognizing that the world has influenced you and impacted you. That you're not as sold out to God as you once were. And it's a path of repentance that leads to confession where we fall on our face and we say, Oh God, I want to know the truth about me. I don't want to look in that fake mirror anymore that causes me to look one way, the way the I'd like to see myself. I want to see what you see. Would you dare to ask yourself that during this invitation time? Brian's going to come and he's going to lead us in a song, a beautiful song, Just As I Am. Listen, would you ask God, God, show me right now in these verses we'll sing, show me just how I am to you. Let me see the truth about me. I don't want to live in the dark anymore. I don't want to be delusional anymore. I want to know what you see when you look at me. Let's stand. He's going to sing. You pray. If you need to come here to the front, you do that. If you want to just kneel right there at your seat or sit there at your seat, you just do business with God. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am and waiting not to Thank you.